Church, would you please stand with me as I read today's passage? So we're in Genesis 3. Last week I began my week of study thinking we'd go 1 through 7, got in it too, too much, and it was too much for one week, so we're divided into two. But uh, we need to read the entire paragraph, 1 through 7, to get it in flow. I, I would say, uh, perhaps with the exception of Psalm 23, there is no more rich and practically packed passage in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you, hear, when the, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Last week we saw the first five verses, this conversation with Eve and the serpent, and several things stood out. First of all, Satan distorts God's word, and then he denies God's word, the passage we just read. Satan is suggesting to Eve that God is not good, that God cannot be fully trusted, and that God was holding back something they really needed to be happy. Now, we've got to understand, this is the satanic strategy for all of us, that in one way or the other, Satan will try to convince you that God is not really good. He will often use the pain and suffering of life, including your own life, but he'll try to convince you that God is not really good, that God, therefore, cannot be fully trusted, and therefore, that God is holding back something that you really need to be happy. That's the satanic strategy. Now, Eve responds and makes two errors. She overstates God's restriction and understates God's goodness. And we have the same tendencies, and we better be vigilant that we don't understate God's goodness, nor overstate God's restrictions, hence the problem of legalistic Christianity, rules-oriented, where you take um, traditions outside the Scriptures and elevate them to the place of, of God's Word. Now today, with that as a background, we come to verse 6 and 7, packed with relevant truth from God's Word. So... Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was, three things, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, this is the first time when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the first time we see sin in the Bible, and with this act of rebellion comes sin and guilt and death to all mankind and to all creation. In fact, Romans 8 details at some length that the entire creation today is groaning under the curse of sin. 
We are now in a rebel planet, and everything is affected, and the whole creation is groaning, and will groan until Jesus Christ returns to begin the new heavens and the new earth. So, last week we saw this unusual conversation that took place between the serpent, Satan speaking through the serpent, and Eve. And just thinking about it, uh, we didn't talk about it last week, but where was Adam in all of this? Well, it's our passage today that tells us at the end of verse 6, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He was with her? I mean, good night. He was there the whole time. He didn't say a word. Uh, he should have been there, and when that serpent was attacking God's word and trying to suggest God wasn't good, he said, whoa, wait a minute. That's not true. That's not true. God is good to us. He's not holding back something. It's always best to, to obey God. He should, he should have stopped that nonsense. Hey, give me a shovel here so I could get after this serpent. He should have been active, engaged, fighting the battle. But he was silent, passive, and withdrawn. And I think that is probably one of the attacks, particularly to men from the enemy, that somehow because of guilt and fear and, and all kind of other things, the lies and the schemes of the enemy, that a lot of men, not all, but a lot of men, can tend to be silent, passive, and withdrawn when it comes to the spiritual battle. Men can be very good and strong when it comes to career and work and, and uh, hobbies and houses, but when it comes to the spiritual battle, so many men tend to be silent and withdrawn and listen to the suggestions of the enemy. Look, you forfeited your right to, to, to say anything. You sit down and shut up. That is a lie. Now, men, uh, our wives need us to fight the battle. If you get kids, our kids need us to fight the battle. Our churches need us. Our cities need us to engage in the battle. Now, how do we do that? How do we fight the spiritual battle? Well, several ways. First of all, we fight it with prayer. We pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus, in the Lord's, in the Lord's Prayer that we pray every Sunday morning, there are three petitions. It starts with three God-centered praises, your kingdom, uh, your will, your name, and then there are three petitions. One of those three involves the battle. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That would be 33% of the prayer requests in the Lord's Prayer. And that would tell us that this is important to pray about the battle. And we could go to other passages as well. So at the very least, men, we pray that God would lead us not into temptation, that he would protect us, protect our family, protect our home church, protect our church. Lord, banish Satan from bothering us. We pray. The Bible says that this book is the sword of the spirit in the spiritual battle. It is impossible to wield that sword if you don't know that sword, if you're not doing that sword. And so that is a fundamental part of the battle that we, we soak ourselves in the Word of God. And we stand on the passages. We'll come back to that. Probably the key thing when it comes to the battle is this. Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. Every time we sin, we give an opening for the enemy in our lives or in our families. Every time. So, husbands particularly, let me call you and challenge you. 
that the main thing you can do in the spiritual battle is that you walk with Jesus. That you set the pace to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So here's the challenge. uh, That we lead the way in fighting the spiritual battle. So Adam and Eve, uh, they listened to the lie of Satan that, uh, you know, that they're missing out if they don't eat this fruit because God knows, we saw last week, that if, that if you eat this fruit, you're going to be like God. You're going to know good and evil. You're going to be in the know. Satan is trying to convince them they're missing out. Now, Adam and Eve decide, okay, that that's, that's, must be true. I'm missing out. They feel like they can disobey God's word, his clear command that we saw in Genesis 2, not eat of that tree. They feel like they can disobey that command and get away with it. They're somehow an exception. You know, one of Satan's strategies with us is to try to convince us that we're an exception to God's word, to God's commands. How often I've seen that over the years, over the decades as a pastor, that somehow, you know, what God clearly says in the Bible doesn't apply to my case here. may apply to these other places, but somehow I'm an exception. It's called rationalization. And we should pre-decide before we get into that situation that we are not an exception to God's Word. There's a great little story from uh, this zookeeper. He was a former zookeeper, and he was talking about raccoons. Not uncommonly when I come on the campus early in the morning, I'll see these little baby raccoons, and sometimes I see the adult raccoons. Well, he, he, he talks about how an adult a raccoon will go through a glandular change at 24 months. And turn from a nice, tame, little, cute, furry creature to a, a pretty violent uh, adult raccoon. And he says that an adult raccoon, a 30-pound raccoon, can do battle with a 100-pound dog in a fight. You know, they're just pretty vicious. And he, he was talking to a young woman, Julie, who had a, a friend of his who had a, a, a pet raccoon. He said, you know, one day that raccoon's going to be a problem. You need to get rid of that raccoon. And she sort of smiled and said, you know, bandit would never hurt me. You know, and just, you know, that may be true of other raccoons, but that's not true of bandit. Well, a few months later, she had to undergo plastic surgery from facial lacerations when bandit inexplicably turned on her and did did serious damage. They released bandit into the wild. So, you know, she's not an exception to the way God made raccoons. You are not an exception to God's Word. You're not. And God is doing what that zookeeper did with that young girl, Julie. Don't hurt yourself. Every time God gives you a command to not do something, He's saying, don't hurt yourself. Every time God gives you a command to do something, He's saying, help yourself. God's heart for you is good. It's good. Do not believe the lie of the enemy that God is holding back on you. Verse 7, after the sin, what happens? Well, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Isn't that interesting that just right after they sin, first thing they do is cover their nakedness. Now, this is counterpoint to the verse before the paragraph. At the end of Genesis 2, 2.25, we read this. The man and the woman were both naked and felt no shame. Because there was no sin, there was no fear of one t- taking advantage of the other, exploiting the other, or, 
or there's no mistrust in the relationship. But the paragraph ends, the paragraph on sin ends, that they are naked and now they feel shame and guilt and they attempt a covering of themselves. And we're reminded, sin not only separates us from the holy God, but sin separates us from other people around us. It brings distrust. It brings fear. It brings guilt. It brings, uh, it, it brings shame. It, it torpedoes human relationships. For those of you who are married, the best thing that you can do to have a strong, thriving, flourishing marriage is both walk with Jesus Christ. And as you get closer to Christ, you will get closer to each other. The worst thing that you can do in your marriage is to go your way rather than God's way. Expect troubles and problems. Some of you in that situation right now, don't be surprised because the barriers do come up whenever we walk in sin. They came up immediately with Adam and Eve. You know, the barriers came up, we'll see as we continue with Genesis, some of the damage it does. So, you know, Satan had suggested to them, Eve, you're missing out. You'll be in the know if you, you eat this fruit immediately. They eat the fruit, they're naked, they're alienated from each other, they're alienated from God. Satan is a big fat liar. He lied, didn't he? Wasn't true, they weren't missing out. Satan is a liar to you. He's a, the, Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies. Do not believe those schemes. And the way to recognize these schemes is to live in this book and to obey this book and to walk with God. All righty. So back in Genesis 2, God has said to Adam, he said, uh, live it up, have, have it, eat of all the fruit, any of the fruit of the trees you're going to freely eat. Really, it was emphatic. Except this one tree, don't eat of that tree. And he said, in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to surely die. So now they have eaten. In what sense do Adam and Eve die? Because we know they're going to live another 900 years. So uh, what happens? Well, the Bible defines the essence of death as being separated from the source of life, which is God. As soon as they ate and disobeyed God, they were separated from God. They died spiritually in that moment. And that was the primary reference. But they began to die physically because of that. And thirdly, a third sense, besides a spiritual death and a physical death, unless God intervened for them, they would die eternally after their physical death. It's what the Bible calls the second death. If you die in your sin, then you will die eternally from God. And so unless God intervened, they would die eternally in the second death. But as we're going to see, God will intervene. Now just two brief verses to finish the passage, but... There's more in the passage. I have said before, including in the book of Genesis, but especially in the Old Testament, that the theme of the, of the Old Testament, the theme of the Bible, the Bible is all about one person. Who? It's Jesus Christ. In fact, after the resurrection, when Jesus walked with the two disciples, the road to Emmaus, when they got there or went on the way, he said he began with Moses, went through all the Old Testament and showed them uh, all the passages referring to himself. Must have been incredible. Jesus, to understand the Bible, to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. Now, where is Jesus in this first paragraph, 3, 1 through 7? Well, several things let me point out. And by the way, I should almost say this every week, but you'd get tired of it. Um, these three things 
uh, one or two are subtle, one's not so subtle. And I'm not smart enough to come up with these things. Some of you might overestimate my abilities there, but I know good sources. I know good people and where to go to find good things. Here are three pointers to Jesus just in this passage. In verse 6, we read of Eve that she took of its fruit and ate. So two verbs here, took and ate, uh, are in the present tense, take and eat. Those are words of death from Satan, uh, to get Eve to take and eat. And they will remain words of death until Jesus Christ takes up those same two words at the communion table on the Thursday night before he is crucified to bear our sin. And what does he say to his disciples in Matthew 26, 26? It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, it is possible that uh, that Jesus was unintentionally making this reference, but I don't think so because Genesis 3 is just such a foundational passage with the fall and the curse. And I believe that Jesus was picking up on these same words that were words of death for Adam and Eve and all mankind and saying, take and eat, this is my body. So every Sunday morning when we take the communion elements, we take that bread represents the broken body of Jesus, which can cover all of our sin. And it becomes words of life for us. So a a, a subtle pointer to Jesus with take and eat. By the way, that's a reminder to us that the solution to our sin problem is always the death of Christ. As he was pointing about his crucified body that would be crucified the next day. The second pointer to Christ in the passage is after Adam and Eve sin, what do they immediately do? They, they recognize their nakedness and they, they go co- collect some fig leaves. You know, they're probably, they're embarrassed, they're fearful, they, 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 they don't trust each other anymore. They feel exposed and, and they're apparently some big fig leaves there. They probably get a little vine and try to twist those together and cover themselves in their nakedness. They're, they're experiencing the guilt and shame that sin always brings. And they're trying to do something about that. They're their own attempts to rescue themselves from their sin problem. And we will see in coming verses in chapter 3 that God, uh, or in fact we already see it here, that God covers them with animal skins. And that's just going to assume that animals were slain, at least one animal if not a couple of them. And that's the very first hint in the Bible that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And this is the way it works. Because I've sinned against a holy God. The penalty of that is death. That's what Adam was told by God. The penalty is that's death. I'm going to die forever unless someone dies in my place. But the problem that Sergio cannot die in my place because he's got his own sin to take care of. And whatever animal God killed back in Genesis 3, goat, cow, lamb, whatever it was, that uh, animal certainly cannot pay for a human sin. But it is a temporary substitute pointer to the sacrifice that one day could cover my sin. And that is God himself. So we've got the triune God in eternity, uh, for all eternity past in heaven, God the Son, who is spirit, takes on flesh, a body. Starts with a little baby. 
grows up. Now, Jesus, what if he dies in my place? Well, he's human, so he can die in my place. And he's God, and so he can die in not only my place, but all of your places, the whole world. And his blood can cover my sin. And so this begins, the uh, faint voice that we hear, and it'll rise to a, 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 an incredible crescendo by the end of the New Testament in Re Revelation 4 and 5, that you know, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. And so when Jesus first walks onto the, the planet in his public ministry, what does John the Baptist say to him? But look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and every single animal that was ever sacrificed in the Old Testament was a pointer to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so right at the outset, Adam and Eve try to cover their nakedness and cover their shame and cover their guilt by their own human efforts. Friends, that's religion. That is the essence of religion, that I try to take care of my sin problem by my own efforts and being good enough. And God basically says, that won't do. That won't work. Here, let me do it for you. All of mankind, every other religion besides the, the Bible, much of Christianity, unfortunately, is trying. I've got to earn my salvation by being good enough. I got to be religious. I got to be churchy. But no, it's just a Savior who dies for me. And I receive the gift like a beggar with open hands. No pride for me. All praise to God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. We get a hint right at the outset of the Bible with the first sin. One more is explicit rather than implicit, but it doesn't become explicit until the Old Testament in one of the great passages of the Bible. The last half of Romans 5 talks about this event that we just read and the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. In fact, um, in so many ways, there is a contrast between the first Adam and Jesus Christ. In fact, this whole temptation account in Genesis 3 will be turned on its head when Jesus Christ comes to the planet and he is tempted, a threefold temptation from Satan, and he shows us this is how you do it. This is how you overcome that temptation. It is through the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So let me just pause. Sin came into the world through one man. Significantly, sin did not come to the world through Eve. Because in that marriage relationship, Adam is responsible for that family. The husband is the head of the family. Men, if you are a husband in a family, whatever the causes are, if there is sin in your family, you are ultimately responsible, not your wife and not your kids. I'm not saying that the wife is absolved of all responsibility, but guys, own the responsibility that you've got for the spiritual life and the spiritual welfare of your family. Own it. And you own it by living for Jesus Christ, by your own personal example, before anything else. So, back to the passage. Therefore, just as sin, sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. Death, sin always brings death, separation from God, which leads to physical death. And apart from a Savior, it'll lead to eternal death. And so death, here's the, the key passage here. And so death spread to all men because all sin. That includes you and me, doesn't it? Death spread, spiritual death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, at first blush, reading Romans 5, you would think that that refers to the fact that all of us will sin one day. But when you look at the passage, uh, it'll become clear if we looked at all of it minutely that that's not the point. I mean, that's true that all of us sin one day, but it's bigger than that. It's the fact that we are the, the, uh, in the line of spiritually dead sinful people, and that's what comes out of that. That is, you and I were in Adam when he sinned, and we sinned in Adam at that time. The Bible is not saying here that John and Erica uh, all sinned. One day they're going to sin in history, but that that time when Adam sinned, John and Erica sinned, and I sinned, and so did you. We sinned in Adam. The Bible calls that, or, or theologians refer to that, as original sin. Interesting to me that George Bernard Shaw, this famous literary figure and earlier 20th century England who was a skeptic when it comes to the gospel. He said there's only one verifiable, empirically verifiable doctrine of theology. That's original sin. And he said that after looking at the Nazi concentration camps. Yep, that's there. And all we got to do is look at our two-year-olds or three-year-olds and ourselves. I mean, all we got to do is look at ourselves. We know it. But it's not just that we're going to sin ourselves. We were born as sinners in sin because we were born to sinners, Adam and Eve. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, God has always dealt with mankind through a head and a representative. The whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what happened with Adam and what has happened because of Christ. Now, uh, to be honest with us, uh, with, with you, you know, I don't really like it that when Adam sinned that I some, that somehow got charged to me. I don't really like that. Maybe when the offensive guard on, uh, where's Joe, A&M's team, when the offensive guard jumped off sides, maybe the wide receiver didn't like it that, you know, the whole team was penalized. But they're a team. They're a team. You're part of the human race team. And I don't really like that, but i tell you what I do like. I love it that when Jesus Christ died for my sin, that was charged to me. And, he, and God wiped out all my sin. I love that part. I love that part. Now, I'm going to be stuck in sin anyway, either because of my sin or Adam's sin. And the heart of it is Adam's sin, but it's also my sin. But thank God that God will take the righteousness of Christ and give it to me. I was praying after this first service with a man that came up here. He was broken. He said he had made a mess of his life and ruined it with alcoholism and lost his marriage and did great damage to his kids. And and I just had to remind him in prayer. First, I had just to ask him, are you willing to receive the grace of God for all your sin? Are you willing to believe that Christ's death is bigger than your sin? Yeah, yeah, I am. And, and are you willing to believe that, that God will look at you as in Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus washes your sin whiter than snow? Yeah, yeah. And that's true for every one of us. If it was up to me to earn my salvation, I wouldn't have a chance, wouldn't have a prayer. But God looks at me, looks at Jeff Wells, this sinful man that you're seeing right here. He looks at me as completely blameless as Jesus Christ. And that is true for every one of us that are in Christ. 
It's the gospel. It is grace. Yay, God. It's the best news ever. It's not religion. It is grace. It is grace. So our passage takes us to one of the milestone events in human history when our representative, Adam, sinned and all mankind and all creation was plunged into darkness. But there was always the hope from that time on. In fact, it was in God's mind in eternity past that one day God himself would do something about our sin. He would come to earth. He would die on a cross. He would pay for our sin. His blood was shed. The beauty of the gospel. Now, if you take all of verses 1 through 7 together, put last week together this week, uh, there are some very practical passages. And so I'm going to go back and reprise some of the practical passages that we saw last week that continue in our passage. Twelve brief truths about the spiritual battle, because this is the first passage in the Bible, ba- ba- in the Bible that deals with the spiritual battle, deals with sin, deals with Satan, and deals with temptation. <clears throat> there is, number one, there is a raging spiritual battle, unseen but real. Beware of denial about the battle, ignoring Satan's schemes. Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the present forces, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, a lot of, what a lot of Christians do is, is just don't think about the battle because it's not pleasant. I mean, who wants to think about that? But we ignore it to our peril. Uh, our entire life is lived in wartime, spiritual war. Number two, we have a real spiritual enemy who is out to devour us. First Peter 5, 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. <clears throat> Three, Satan's strategy is to convince you that God is not really good and God cannot be fully trusted. Behind all sin is the suggestion that God is not good. Four, when the tempter comes, he comes in disguise recognize his schemes to make sin look attractive. Five, in the spiritual battle, we must resist the devil and stand firm in Christ's strength. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Six, in Christ's strength, I can say no to temptation. Now here's the deal with this one. Right now, uh, all of us are in temptation one way or the other. And some of you are in some real temptation right now to go away from God. And part of the lie, part of the scheme is this. You can't help yourself. It's just the way your family is. It's the way you are. It's the way you've always been. You can't help yourself. That's a lie. This is what the Bible says. This is why we need to soak ourselves in Scripture because we need to to claim these truths. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, a passage I'd recommend all of us memorize. It's not a quick one, but we could do it. Here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That is, if Randy's got this temptation, so does Todd. It's common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You do not have to sin. Period. Seven, Jesus resisted temptation by submitting to God's word in contrast to Adam and Eve. He did not defeat Satan by knowing God's word or even by memorizing God's word but by submitting to God's word, obeying it. Do it. Eight, sin always hurts me. 
I, it'd be good if we had that written on the frontal lobe of our brain so that every time we came under any kind of temptation, we would just see it through these words, sin hurts Jeff and probably others around him. Always, always. Nine, there is judgment on sin, make no mistake. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Ten, beware of the lie that you're an exception to God's command, that it does not apply to you. Eleven, God's grace is always bigger than my sin. In fact, that same passage in Romans 5, when it gets to verse 20, says this, when sin increased, grace increased all the more, all the more. And 12, the solution to sin is a death, Christ's Christ death. The solution is never me trying harder. It's never my religious efforts. It is always receiving the grace of God poured out in Jesus. And we celebrate that every Sunday morning with communion, every Sunday morning. Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat> and this is what I want to say. There are some of you here in, in the room who have been going on the Adam and Eve plan to try to cover your own sin by religion or being good enough or maybe giving some money to God or some kind, one way or the other. You may have been in church all your life and you're still on that plan. Today you heard that plan doesn't work. And you are clear that the only way, the only solution to your sin is the death of a Savior in your place. And if you have never done so before right now, it's actually something that happens in your heart by faith. Prayer is a good way to receive that, that gift. But it, basically, it's a matter of just, yes, Lord. In your heart, you say, yes to Jesus. I need a Savior. You can do that right now. In fact, if that's your heart, it's already happened. God's already just saved you about three seconds ago. But just make it clear to you, Jesus, save me from my sin. And he will do it. For the rest of us, what a strong passage in God's Word that we better walk with God or there's trouble. Let me pray over us. Lord God, help us because we need your help to stand strong in Jesus Christ and obey you. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.